When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to Turning the Tables. Now, today's guest is someone that I've been looking forward to bringing you because she is something of a maverick, and by her own admission, a whirlwind of energy and enthusiasm. Sarah Newton has spent her career championing the cause of young people as a teenologist, writer, and leading youth expert. She's written books on teenagers and parenting, had a TV series, spoken extensively on youth issues and consulted with Fortune 500 companies. Her life journey started working at Disney World in Florida, an experience which opened her eyes to possibility and imagination. She went on to take an unlikely pivot by joining the police force and becoming a youth and schools officer. It was at this time that a tragic event when a young man she was working with took his own life, shaped the rest of her career. Our conversation started with Sarah talking about that time and how it influenced her journey. Um, Now, it was a job I absolutely loved, I have to say. I was pretty good at it. I did bizarre things when I used to go into schools, like take dartboards and all sorts. I had so much fun. I started quite a few peer um, drug projects at the time that got funded that you know when no one had heard of them so there was quite a lot of innovative things I was um, doing in the place and then something happened that sort of changed I think the way that I felt about my job and the work I was doing and, and the possibilities that it, it would or wouldn't allow me to do and I was working with this one young offender who literally I I I knew him so well. I think he'd been in my life maybe about, I want to say 18 months to two years, but it could have been longer or shorter. He was um, like a typical sort of young offender in terms of his, I think his mum was a prostitute, his dad had gone to prison. I mean, there was very little hope in in this kid's life. Um, But he was actually a really, really nice kid. And and I really got along with him. And then, unfortunately, he got into um, drugs and just sort of went down and down and downhill and, you know, just didn't look or even, you know, look like the same person or was the same person. And then I think, gosh, I can't even remember how many times I'd arrested him, maybe over 30. And we were in the back of the van and I was taking him to to court. I think he'd breached his bail or something. And I was handcuffed to him because everyone thought it was violent, although I never saw that. And I remember just looking at him and saying, you know, why? Why do you do this? You don't have to. You know, not really understanding the position he's in. And he just sort of looked at me and said, well, this is what people expect of me. And, you know, I remember sitting in the back of that van trying to get my head around that. Because when you're a police officer, you don't see things like normal people, I think. Because you're obviously day in, day out, seeing really different things. And I took him into the court, and that was the last time I saw him because he took his life. And oh. yeah, now and and this happened quite a bit actually. You know, you'd, not a bit, but you you would hear of it or see it. I mean, it it did happen. 
but I think with Luke, the the thing that I, I, you know, as as a human being, you constantly say, well could I have said or done something? Now, yes. you know, in hindsight, I know I couldn't, and that was his journey, and that's where he ended up, unfortunately. Um, but it was his, his trajectory was so sort of almost written out, you know, you could almost see it happening. You know, that it was like there was no hope. There was, there was no, no one believed these kids could be or do anything else. So I thought, what I decided to do was throw away the book, the way that they were telling me to do things, and do it my own way. Um, be a bit of a maverick. How, how did that? I mean, just pausing on that event. I mean, how did that make you feel? How did it affect you? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I don't think at the time it. You see, because when you're a police officer, you get very, very good at not at cutting every emotion off. You have to, or else you'd literally be mm. in a state every night because you see things that you know human beings should not see so yes. I, you know when someone says to you how did you feel well I didn't really feel anything I just thought that's kind of mm. sad but I think what, what really I was feeling something about is the fact that that we are here and we're supposed to be helping these kids and we're not doing yes. anything What's, what we're doing isn't really working and these kids aren't changing and they're not seeing hope and and I think that it was more that that was the driver for me. It's almost like a, a, a sort of a comment on the social circumstances that enable you to almost predict an outcome, isn't it? Yeah, and um, and I just didn't buy that. I didn't believe that that these people weren't you know you couldn't reach somebody that you couldn't just change a bit that you could you know that people were destined to end up somewhere i just i just wouldn't couldn't believe that what do you think he he meant what do you think luke meant when he said this is what is expected of me well i mean he came from a um a very notorious family um he's you know he he dropped out of school for for Many things. One of the most funny was when he pulled a Mooney and then turned around and waved at the teacher <laughs> so they knew who he was. But, um, you know, that's the kind of kid he was. And um, I think people would tell him again and again and again, his mum, his teachers, you know, the police, some of the police officers, you know, that he was scum. You know, that he wasn't any good and that he, mm. you know, this, you know, that, that eventually he became it. Yes. Um, because there was no one fighting his corner at all. I mean, I would when I when I could, but you know, I still hadn't had this realization. You know, and I was still like, oh god, it's so obvious where he's going to end up. Yeah, I think there was no one fighting his side. So, and and all the stuff he was getting was just negative. All the friends he had were were of the criminal kind and the criminal nature. So it's like what you know, it's what was expected of him. Big brother was in jail. His dad was in jail. His mum was a you know really a good mm. you know good for nothing, and it's like, you know, th he was a kid, and that's how he'd grown up. And like, well, what is what else is expected of me? You know, it's like, this is it. This is my life. This is mm. this is what's ahead of me. Mm. And he was very clear, you know, about, about that. That actually, you know, it's almost like there's nothing you can do. This is this is where I'm going. Yes, that, and that's, of course, very sad, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that was the thing that was really driving my, my, my work, you know, to change things. Not, 
not the fact that he took his life because he may have done that anyway. Um, you know, he he was of there. There was many problems, um, but the fact that he felt that he couldn't be anything else, and and that was the bit that really got me. Like, well, God, how have we failed him as a society if that's what he thinks? So, do you think that event was one of the? Well, I'm assuming it was one of the key components into you wanting to focus much more on the teenage years and, and, and younger people and how they evolved. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, when this all happened with Luke, I went out and did things differently and, and had some really good results, but I got told I had to go back and do it the way that we were doing it because I, no one, I couldn't quantify actually what I was doing, so it was not a process or a procedure. And I think that also what was happening, I was getting lots and lots of parents coming up to me saying, I don't know what to do with my child. And there was nothing. At the time, there was absolutely nothing. And I think that it got to this place where I just couldn't stand it anymore. The thought of having to go in and pretend, you know, do this thing with these kids that I knew wasn't working, when what I'd had done was working, it, it was just like my whole soul and my whole being couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Yes. So I just left, literally, just said, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a career break. What I'm always striving for is I want somebody to see a vision of themselves. I want them to see a possibility. That's what excites me. I, you know, I'm not particularly a helper. I don't go around, you know, someone asks well, you can ask my kids. They'd be like, nope, we wouldn't ask you for help. You might ask me for advice and ask me what I thought, but you wouldn't ask me to help you do something because I'm not, you know, I'm not that kind of person. But I think that, you know, if you want me to help you pick a university or figure out what you're great at, yeah. And what, what do you put that down to, that... that because that is quite a, 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 a it's, it's a difference, isn't it? In as you say, an archetype between a helper and someone who's sort of liberating people's potential. I suppose you might say. I think it's something that's actually always been in me, and I think that I was always somebody that never saw someone with their baggage when they arrived. I just saw the person, and and I saw what I saw. And I could always see what was the good. I never, you know, I was never interested in, in the baggage someone had brought with them because that wasn't helpful. And so I think it was partly who I was, but also partly the experiences that that I'd had. I mean, my dad used to work for very, very huge companies, or you know, like Procter & Gamble and Wrigley's. And he always, you know, he was always sent on these self-help seminars. This is before they were really, like, cool and trendy. And so he'd come home with, like, the seven basic habits and all of that kind of stuff. And I would devour it when I was sort of 10, 11, 12. And so I wouldn't, I think that maybe that had some impact as well. So you were sort of exposed to that that sort of self-help world uh, early on. So you left the police and, and then you focused more exclusively on the parenting and teenage world. Well, yeah, I mean, I left the police, I left my husband and I left my house all at once. I, it, was sort of, it was like this, this kind of, my life was not what I wanted it to be. I, I felt like I was up a ladder and it was leaning against the wrong wall, so I just left everything. Really? I mean, that's a, that's a fairly dramatic event, I am quite dramatic. <laughs> but what I absolutely recognised was that I was so unhappy in, in, in so many ways and that I, I was just pretending to be somebody I think that I wasn't and I just didn't want that life at all. So I just sort of upped and, and left everything. And, and 
But I am a bit like that. I, I do kind of do that. It's like I just go, no, I've had enough and walk out. What was it about the circumstances that you were in at that point that made you take that decision? Because obviously it's it's not a a light decision to take is it no it wasn't it wasn't a light decision I think what had probably happened is I'd settled for a situation that wasn't the right situation for me I you know I'd go out and I'd get told how to behave which is the worst thing can anyone can ever tell me and it just it was it was such a bad match and I think I've always been very self-aware of what isn't good for me and of getting away from it as absolutely as soon as I can and I think that I just didn't like myself very much you know I didn't really like who I'd become I was so cynical and I think I had this flash forward of what I might like you know be in 20 years if I'd stayed in that situation and it was just scary it was not you know I thought this is just not why I want to be or who I want to be and I was very comfortable I was earning a really good wage I lived in this beautiful flat with swimming pools and everything you know it was lovely but I was you know I was this is just you didn't feel like it was you and it's not that it wasn't me it was just like I, I was I'm just unhappy this is not you know I'm not who I want to be here and I'm off because it's the only way I can do it is to make this clean break so yeah I went <laughs> did you did you have a sense at that point of who you wanted to be what 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 was that what actually happened is um actually they diagnosed me with some kind of depression at the time and the police so the police sent me off sent me off on this sick leave which was so extended so I was still getting paid not full wage, but I was still getting paid. So I, right. di- I didn't need to do anything. And I think I probably took 18 months actually not really mm. doing a lot, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I mean, I'm a great thinker, but I don't really think a lot about my actions. I'm a huge risk taker. I always have been a nightmare child. So I didn't really think about what's next. I, I just knew that I couldn't do this. What was the catalyst then for you getting involved in the well, parenting? Well, what happened was area. I think I got so obsessed with Oprah and started to realise that she, what she was spouting was the stuff that I'd learned, you know, when I was 10 or 11. I thought, hang on a minute, maybe I can sort of do, do this. So found out that this thing was called coaching at, in, its, in its infancy very, very early on and trained and then for about 18 months I coached anyone that was alive literally if they were breathing I would coach them it was like <laughs> yeah it was just experience. like a bit of like the mirror test you know are you breathing yeah I'll coach you uh, even coached my dad actually and, and he ended up getting a great retirement um, out of his company but I, I just went off and coached any, anyone and found out I actually quite liked it and I think why I liked it is was you were dealing in possibilities and then I think I was out somewhere one day a coaching event and someone said to me do you know anyone who coaches teenagers and without missing a beat I said yeah I do oh what do I do now so I started coaching young people which in in the beginning the young people I was coaching were very troubled let's say with the sort of kids I would have dealt with in the police so I think that was working for me you know in the early early um, days and what I really found which was then going back to the police is that they weren't necessarily the problem. They were part of the problem and I needed to coach these parents. So I then went and trained in the States to do another um, coaching program, which was called Parent as Coach, which really opened my eyes to, to how 
great parenting can be. I mean, it's not always like that because I know we have really difficult children out there that don't respond to certain things. And so I then came back and um, sort of held up my flag. And I was, as far as I'm aware, one of the, you know, the first or one of the first parenting coaches in the UK held up my flag and said, oh, I do this and started doing it. And it sort of started from there, really. (laughs) And because, you know, you you were one of a very few people who actually had expertise in that area, presumably that's why you ended up with your own TV show. Yeah, and I think that what what happened is that is when I started out, I really used the police bit a lot because it was actually it made the link much easier and it actually had it added some weight because literally I didn't really have a lot at the time you know coaching is and was then something no one knew of it was it was unregulated so the police added some gravitas to to what I did so I mentioned it all the time and and I think that that was what was interesting to people <laughs> the fact that you know they'd had this person that was worked at Disney and then worked at the police and was now helping these young people it it was like a media story waiting to happen I think and I was a great storyteller and probably still am in a way I think I was saying something new I think no one had said it before well it gave you credibility I guess because you know you were dealing with young people and difficult young people so that's you know uh, as you say given that coaching in itself wasn't necessarily well understood that was a very firm grounding in people's minds I imagine absolutely what I'd failed to realize is that when people say police officer it comes with expectations and things that a way that people think you are I was never that police officer when I was in the police because I suppose it comes with the idea of discipline doesn't it which wasn't necessarily I guess what you where the route you took no, I mean, I am the most undisciplined person out there and, and somebody who, who, you know, my children have never had any rules whatsoever. So tell me about the, the, the show and what, what effect did that have on, on your life? So I'd done a, f- a few TV shows and appeared on quite a lot of TV and loved it because actually I did some of this in the police. No one else would do the TV and the radio in the police so they used to always drag me out to go and do it. So I'd done a lot of it in the police so I was quite used to it to be quite honest. So I was fine with it all. And then the TV show happened and... It was like the pinnacle, you know, everyone wants a TV show and a, and a book, and that's what I'd got. And, oh God, this show was an absolute nightmare from the beginning to the end. Now, there's obviously a lot I can't say, but, you know, it was really not a good match for me. And we, before I did it, I had this feeling that it wasn't a good match, but obviously it was so alluring that I, I went and did it. What was the thing that didn't didn't work for well there was a few things i think they'd expected police officer sarah yes and that person never existed anyway and you know i'm the way i'm talking to you now is the way i would deal with the kids i absolutely believed the way to control was to totally let go of needing to control somebody so i think they expected me to you know be super nanny Actually, I nearly got on that show at one point because they were going to have her go in with someone else, but that never happened. But they they expected Super Nanny and they got, you know, somebody that's very far from that, has never ever sat their kid on the naughty step or anything. And a lot of them needed much, much more than I could ever give them. And they were the kind of children that I would have worked with in the police. And here I was, you know, living with them as just Sarah. 
And I was there with no no support, really. Obviously, when you're a police officer, you've got all these people around you feeding in, and these kids needed much more than I could ever give them. So, what kind of what kind of circumstances were those? children one of them particularly that the worst one that ended up in fact i'm still friends with the the child she it was you know you're talking about selling cigarettes at you know very young age for sex that kind of thing one of them was involved in drug dealing and this was all stuff that sort of came out it was police officer things yes i see not not really parenting things more more well, that, yeah, there was some real parenting issues, but, you know, like, people needed therapy. They didn't need me coming in and pretending I could fix everything because, it, it, you know, that wasn't who I was anyway. And these situations needed years, years and years and years to fix them. Yeah, not, not, not in the, under the auspices of a, of a television programme for entertainment. no. There were not people I would have um, coached at, at all because they they weren't they were a huge. I mean, one of the kids ran away, one of them locked me out, one of them escaped. You know, it was just it was literally like I was like, oh my god, you know, this is. It was very very tough, and there was just me and a runner there with me who was eighteen years old. Wow, yeah, yeah. So it was it was tough, I a would difficult imagine, situation, yeah. and I, I I should have thought about it. I should have known, but I think you know I was so alert because that's what everybody wants in this industry. You you want a TV show and you want a book, and there it was in in front of me, and I was like, yep, grabbing this. Yeah, oh, you know, and but yeah. probably. Came out the other end a bit shook up. But probably wiser. Very, very, you know, much, much wiser, but I think very bruised, you know, because they were, they'd go, we want you to do this. And I'd be like, yeah, but I don't do that. Yeah, but we want you to do this. We want you to do this so the kid responds and reacts. But that's not how I work, you know, so it was, you know, and eventually you end up doing things for the camera that you'd never ever do. And me thinking, this is not helping. You're just supposed to be following me, doing my work. And, yeah, it was it was a very difficult time. <laughs> Let's just say. Yes. Well, I guess you you still had well a very successful book in Help My Teenager is an Alien. Yes. I wouldn't have got that book if it wasn't for the TV show and and, and there's still a lot of things in that book, you know. I think if I re- rewrote it now I'd change certain things, but not a lot of it. I think a lot of it still still holds true to to what what I believed, but I sold my soul a bit. Uh, well, a lot actually for TV, I think, and and it, it just realised it. This was just not a good fit for me. So, having had that obviously bad experience, because it clearly compromised you in lots of different ways. Wh- wh- where did that take you next? Well, what happened was after that, I think I got married to my current husband and and sort of went on a bit of a break for a while. That experience, that difficulty you had with the show and and all that did that inform how you moved back into the the parenting teenage world when i came back everything was not it wasn't the same i was i was only half in it i think you know i I think it probably and I, i think i wrote about this a while ago that i think that by the time i sort of came back and did it the idea would run its course a bit and I felt like I should have probably let it go a bit sooner than I did, but I kept holding on to it because this is what people knew me as. I probably should have stopped a bit earlier than I did. But I still loved the work. I still loved working with the young people. I still, you know, loved seeing what, I, you know, somebody could achieve. 
but a, a lot of the magic had, had, had gone from it. You know, I think I'd definitely been scarred. Yes, yes, I can see that. So what? how did things change for you? What, what new world did you move into? Well, I think what I started doing was investigating like generational theory and, and, and looking at young people from a bigger perspective. And rather than looking at them as an individual, I started to look at them as a group. And, and I think, okay, so what is it that people need to know about this group? And so I sort of moved from just doing the individual work, even though I did some of it still, to actually looking at them more as this cohort and got quite obsessed with that. <laughs> what, what would you, because you were described as a, a youth expert and teenologist, is it the teenologist bit that's, that you explored? I mean, I went through every, I'd, I'd been called everything by this point. And I think when I came back, I really didn't know what to call myself. I, I hate, you know, I didn't want to be an expert. There were things that were expected from that. And I've never been, I'm such a generalist. I'm not an expert and, and never really wanted to be. And then I picked teenologist because no one really knew what it meant. And I kind of liked liked that and sort of then developed this whole thing that I call teenology, which is about how to look at a young person's behavior. And so I was sort of living in these two worlds. So one, I was, I was still working with young people, but the, on the other hand, I was trying so hard to develop a new idea. I was trying so hard to develop this new thing. And I was just, you know, listening to how other people were talking about them and what they were saying. And I was just like, this is just so wrong. You know, and I think what I was also realising is that it didn't matter. There was only so much I could do in, in my capacity. So if I was coaching someone to get, you know, good grades, for example, but all that kid was eating was chocolate, then literally what I, my efforts would be, you know, stunted, really. Because it was like there was a whole person there and I could only deal with one small piece of that person. So it, it was more about trying to understand the, almost the cohort that is young people and, and how culturally they're, they're evolved and therefore out of that, how you can get a better understanding of what makes them tick and, and how to help them and things like that, I guess. Yeah, because we assume behaviour is very one-sided and every single thing we do every day has an impact on our behaviour down to, you know, what our parents believed about us, what country we live in, what, you know, generational cohort we're in, what we've been made to believe is possible, what we're eating, how much, you know, everything. And I felt we were speaking about youth behaviour so one-sided and expecting someone to just like be disciplined and do this and your kid will be fine and actually you know that wasn't my experience I as a, you know few parents that I worked with that were the most loving parents ever and quite a few but their kids just weren't responding that's about something else we can't you know hold coaching up as this be all and end all and, and i think it's in society there there's this kind of expectation that that it's just a matter of finding the right techniques and tools and and then it'll all all, all be better but i think your your experience is not that it's much more to do with the person well no because humans aren't techniques you know, we're not we're not a thing that needs to have another technique or process done. We're we're a complicated individuals that are behaving the way we behave because of all kinds of reasons. And what I was trying to do was create this process that helped us figure out what was having the biggest impact on that child and what we could do to then 
possibly help them the most. And, and so I spent quite a long time trying to uh, figure that out, really. And that's taken you into education, hasn't it? Working with, with companies and into a sort of broader area of consultancy, really, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the generational theory work that I did obviously led me there because I had that knowledge, but I also had the knowledge of the young people. I was in their world day in and day out and, and still am in a different way. So I had that knowledge. But I think that the model that I created, which still is nameless, it was called Teenology, isn't anymore, but was really trying to get people to just think a little bit differently about why somebody would be thinking that way and it's always very interesting when I go and speak and I still do sometimes speak about parenting still sometimes still do it so I started this when Freya is now 18 she goes off to university she was a baby when I started all of this work and people still can't hear the messages that they couldn't hear back then and we're 18 years further forward. We, we've not really moved much and that's quite worrying to me. You know, we're still talking about teenagers in the same way and I, I, it's just mind-boggling. What would be an example of that? I, the funniest thing I can think of, and, and it's not funny because the poor parent, but I was at this event and talking about homework, I think, which has always been because personally, my my personal opinion, not necessarily my coaching opinion, is that if my kid doesn't do my homework, they don't do the homework. That's for the school to deal with. You know, punish them as you will. You know, I am not this child's keeper. You know, I am their parent. Uh, anyway, so that's my personal opinion has always been that. I guess my coaching opinion has been slightly different, but not far from that. And I was at this event and this parent stood up and said, um, I want to ask you about my child's homework. And I said, okay. And they said, he gets in and he does this and he does that and he does the other. And then he doesn't get to do his homework until nine o'clock. And I think he should be doing it at six o'clock. And I said, okay, is he, is he ever not handed his homework in? No. Is he behind at school? No. Is he on track to get the grades? And she was like, yes. I was like, you know, so what's your problem? What is your problem? Why can't you see that wanting him to do it at six... It's ridiculous. Well, it's a human behavioural issue, isn't it? Because, you know, in that time you've talked about, the obsession with exam results, success and achievement has grown even more so. And I think parents are so focused on that whole issue that they feel they have to get their children to be successful mm -hmm. in, yeah in and, and it's I mean I see it changing now if you look at parents of younger children it's definitely there's a shift but it's like almost when a child hits the teen years everyone gets frightened and most people not just parents but everyone around them just sort of behaves really weird like suddenly this person isn't a person anymore and they've turned into this kind of robot that has to be happy about doing chores and do the homework when the parents say, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Humans don't behave like that. And so I do feel often that I'm still, 18 years later, repeating the same thing. There's a few things that people have heard, like now people know a little more about the teenage brain than they did when I started. So when I started, everyone thought I was crazy talking about the teenage brain. Now they go, oh yeah, I've heard about this before. But other than that, they're pretty, <laughs> you know, we haven't moved forward in the way that we're painting our teenagers. Depressingly. The yeah, same. I'm wondering why they're so <laughs> miserable. I... So if, if you were writing a manifesto for youth, 
now, what what would that say? The teenage years don't have to be difficult. I think they're difficult, A, because we as parents think they're going to be difficult, and B, because we try and control our children. Um, and that's the real problem, I, I think. So there's two things that you, would always come to my mind when things were difficult, so I'm going to share them now. One's a poem by... Cahill Gibran, I may have said his name wrong, which is about children. And you've probably heard this before, but I will just read you a little bit of them. Um, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. And that always really helped me. This child is its own person. It does not belong to me. My job is merely, you know, to help life's longing for itself, which I know might be very, very spiritual, but that really, really helped me. Also, I'm, I'm trained in choice theory, the work by William Glasser, um, and he has a very, very um, simple way of, of, of saying something I guess similar. I mean, his whole thing about teenagers, and he worked with them for a very long time, is that when we let go of control, we actually gain control. And I absolutely believe that. I had no rules or boundaries really for my children, and that they didn't go off off the rails at all um, because we spoke about everything. Everything was. Um, a conversation, everything was an agreement, everything was a deal. Um, it wasn't me saying it has to has to be this way. Or it wasn't me taking anything personally that they said to me, because when we start taking things personally, we really do um, put ourselves on, on the back foot. And William Glasser always said, um, as parents, that we should ask ourselves, is what I'm about to do or say going to bring me closer to my child or further away from and if it's further away from, then why am I doing it? And his belief is that the relationship with your child becomes above anything else. And I, and I do totally believe that. That sometimes as a parent, you have to be wrong. You have to give in. You have to say yes to things you necessarily don't want to say. Yes to, to put the relationship first. And there's another thing that I used to, um, I actually brought from the police. Instead of saying, you know, what do I want? What does my team want? What does the family need here? And, and almost treating the family like a, a real person. And I think that the problems most parents have is because they take things personally and they treat their child like um, something that belongs to them. And when our child moves into the teen years, we can no longer manage them. We need to start coaching them and we need to have a coaching approach, which is painful. It can be long. Um, it can be complicated, but it's the best way. It means about talking about everything. It means seeing their point of view. It means coming to agreements. It sometimes means backing down. Um, it means you may not agree with what they're about to do, but you have to let them make the mistake. We are not raising a mini us, we are raising a them and they might have entirely different views, opinions and values to us and that's all okay. So if you look back over your life so far and, and those three events that you've talked about, the young lad committing suicide, what happened when you had to leave your uh, husband and home and career all at once and then 
that very difficult situation with the the TV program. What what would you say you've learned from those those adversities? I think that I have a saying, and I say it to my kids all of the time, <laughs> is that expect a breakthrough to look like a breakdown. And it's something that I have learned that when everything feels like it's at absolute rock bottom and you can't go any further and you can't get out of bed and you've had enough of life, that it's a breakthrough. You just can't see it yet. And I think that but that's probably what I've learned. It's what I've taught my children. When you know, It's like when they are really low, I'll go, woohoo, it's a breakthrough. You just can't see it yet. And they think I'm crazy. But, you know, and that's what I think to myself when I'm in those moments where it feels like I'm in the quicksand and I'm never going to get out. I just think, this is a breakthrough. It just looks like this. And, you know, I believe that life is, we have to live life fully in our highs and our lows. And if we want a high that's high, then our lows are going to be quite low. And that it's okay to be in the low. You know, I think we've got a society that thinks we should always be okay. And it's okay to not be okay. Because those places are actually quite luxurious in their own way. Well, I was going to say 100% agree with you. And and really, that's that's the whole philosophy behind Turning the Tables as a a podcast. It's to say that we as a society seem to focus almost exclusively on everything going right and the highs and the successes and almost paint the picture that if you have difficult times if you have difficulties that somehow or other that's you keep those quiet you know that that's you're not succeeding if you if you do that and i think as you're rightly saying that's not the reality of life no it isn't and i think some of us ex- experience them more extreme and i think if yes. we look at very creative children and people that have got a lot of creativity in them we tend to experience and there is research into this tend to experience these these ups and, and lows much more and i believe that that's because we we need to to create and so, you know, and and, um, and I've had a lot of conversations with people about, you know, young people and mental health and how they're linked to creativity, because most of the children I've seen that have been very low have also been very creative. Well, I think that's, uh, that's really reinforced by the fact that, for example, children with uh, Asperger's or autism tend to be more creative uh, much more so than, than than people without those conditions. There is some research coming out about it. Um, not a lot, but there's some. And I believe that, you know, creativity isn't valued at all and it's repressed a lot. And I think that when someone is a creative thinker in some way, and that could be anything, to have that repressed is really difficult. Finding my own creativity has made me realise that actually I know I've had enough of these downs, even if they're in a day, you know, I'll have a day day where I can have 10 up and downs that actually after every every down, I, I learn something. I go, oh, okay, you know, that's, oh, okay. And that, it's okay to to have one of those days where we feel like that and I actually kind of like them in a way because I know that you know however long that period lasts is however long it's going to last there's not a lot I can do I just have to ride the wave and know I'll come out the other end and I don't know when that will be it might be the next day or it might be a month or years down the line but 
you know, I'm there and I'm going to come out, obviously, unless you're like clinically depressed and you need help. But that's being sad is okay. It's a human emotion that we absolutely need. So what advice would you give to other people who are facing adversity in some way, shape or form? You know, that's, that's really an interesting one. What advice would I... Because I, I think it depends on the adversity. I think, firstly, get help if you need help. I certainly, at some point, went went to the doctors when I was di- you know, got diagnosed with depression. Whether I had depression or not, I don't know, but I certainly went and got some help. But actually, not to be too hard on yourself. And, and that in the moments, you know, if, if all you can do that day is put your feet on the ground, that's okay. And the, there's a great book out, actually out there called Super Better by somebody called Jane McGonagall. She's actually a gamer, creates games. And it's a really great book. She, she had a brain, something wrong with a brain, and she had to pull herself out of it. And it was all about setting the tiny quest that she would do each day, like tiny. And that we still remember we are in control. That we can just, if it is just even put our feet on the floor, we can do that. So Super Better would be be a book that had it back then. It would have helped me. It's one of the best books I've read, I think, on on how to sort of take charge of yourself and deal with it in tiny steps. And I think that that's important, that we do something tiny, tiny each day. Something that's a bit of a stretch, but not too much of a stretch. Yes. Because then we remember that we are in control and, and what is happening isn't controlling us, which I think is, is really important. Yes. Yes, uh, I totally agree with that. So how would you describe Sarah Newton today? Who is Sarah Newton? I find it really difficult because, you know, it it it, de- it depends. A lot of the time now I'm, I'm following my daughter around with a camera, taking pictures, coming up with creative direction for her, yes. dealing with all of the stuff that's, that's coming into her business, which I'm fine with, actually really quite enjoy. I think my obsession is and probably always has been is with decoding humans and what they do and why they might do that and looking at what that might mean for the future what things might change this is the stuff that really sort of lights me up is when I get to talk to a company about future or how food might change in the future you know it's really exciting stuff even though some people it's probably not um but you know so so I've obviously still got the the teenology model that I'm still developing with a few people which is all about how do you decide what's the right question to even start to ask at the beginning of any kind of project or um, development of anything so I think I I just do what I want to do what what feels like a good thing to do and it's a weird way to live <laughs> because I don't really have a job title and yes. you know my whole thing is I just want people to think I just want people to think more yes. think differently yes. so how can people get in touch with you? Um, they can, can go, to, go to my website, which is sarahsarahnewton.com. They can sign up for my, like, a purple weekly shot. Or they can just email me at sarahsarahnewton.com. Really, I'm not, never really on Facebook, or you can find me on Instagram at sarahjnewton. Instagram is where I spend most of my time at the minute. Brilliant. Well, that, that's been really great fun. Um, talking to you. I think there's loads of really interesting insight there. We could probably talk for hours, but... That's been fantastic. So thank you ever so much. Well, thank you for for having me. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. So what can we draw from Sarah's story and experiences? I think firstly, I was struck by her enthusiasm and passion for the cause she has championed and how her early life experiences shaped her life. In a way, 
that it would be hard to imagine at the time. But perhaps most significantly, she shows us that following your instincts and your beliefs were crucial to helping her navigate the challenges in her life. The death of that young man and her subsequent depression could have thrown Sarah off course, but it ultimately strengthened her motivation and her drive to pursue the thing she really wanted to in her life. Her advice and understanding of the teenage years and youth issues provides excellent insight and advice for parents and adults in their relationships with young people. On a personal level, she also demonstrates that we shouldn't be frightened of taking on challenges and changing course. As she says, be purple in a sea of beige. You can reach Sarah through the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.